this is Joe and TJ with another episode of our One Thing series. Our desire is that our One Thing series truly helps you to lead better and grow faster. Every month on our podcast, we feature a great guest always on the topic of leadership, and we blast it out to you from the schoolhouse302.com. Thank you, TJ. Please share this with other leaders you know that are looking and craving to get better. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Here we are with our guest, Principal Caffelli. Thank you for being here on the show, Principal Caffelli. Good to be here. Thank you. Of course, this episode, we are focused on how effective school leaders practice service leadership. We distinguish this in a sense that this is something unique and special that we offer to those we lead and possibly within the community at large. With this in mind, we couldn't think of anyone better with whom to have this conversation with than Principal Caffelli. TJ, why don't you tell our audience a bit more about Principal Caffelli? Thanks, Joe. A highly regarded urban educator in New Jersey for over 20 years, Principal Baruti Caffelli distinguished himself as a master teacher and a transformational school leader. As an elementary school teacher in East Orange, New Jersey, he was selected as the East Orange School District and Essex County Public School Teacher of the Year. He was a New Jersey State Teacher of the Year finalist and a recipient of the New Jersey Education Association Award of Excellence. As a middle and high school principal, Principal Caffelli led the turnaround of four different New Jersey urban schools, including the mighty Newark Tech, which went from a low performing school in need of improvement to national recognition, which included US News and World Report Magazine, recognizing the school three times as one of America's best high schools. One of the most sought after school leadership experts and education speakers in America, Principal Caffelli is impacting America's schools from the inside out. He has delivered over 2000 conference and program keynotes professional development workshops, parenting seminars, and student assemblies over his 34 years of public speaking. An expert in the area of attitude transformation, Principal Caffelli is a leading authority for providing effective classroom and school leadership strategies towards closing what he has coined as the attitude gap. I'd like to talk a little bit more about that today as well. A prolific writer, Principal Caffelli has written extensively on professional development strategies for creating a positive school climate and culture, transforming the attitudes of at-risk students, motivating black males to exceed in the classroom, and school leadership practices for inspiring school-wide excellence. In addition to writing several professional articles for popular education journals, he has authored 11 books, including his six ASCD bestsellers, Motivating Black Males to Achieve in School and in Life, Closing the Achievement Gap, The Teacher 50, Is My School a Better School Because I Lead It, which is my favorite, The Principal 50, and The Assistant Principal 50. He's also the author of an ASCD book called The Aspiring Principal 50. His next book, The Equity and Social Justice Education 50, will be released in May of 2021. Okay, Principal Caffelli, we want to talk to you today about principal leadership and the critical role that principals play within their school and their community. One thing we love about your work is the direct questions that you use for principal reflection, ultimately to determine how they see themselves and their impact that they make in their school. So let's begin with this. 
How do you see the principal's role in terms of service to their school and their community? Yeah, that's um, it's a great question. When we talk about service or servant leadership, um, I, I would like to think that as a principal, as a practitioner for those 14 years that I served in that capacity, and I think about it in, in a variety of different ways. I want to give you this example. Um, and, you know, thinking about, uh, Joe was a superintendent, right? Yeah, thinking about your role as superintendent, I, th I thought about with the question, I think about the various different initiatives that come from that level. Um, and, and not only initiatives, but just task um, directives, expectations, et cetera. And some of those, when you, when, you, when you look at them at the level of the teacher, it can be downright overwhelming. It can be downright frustrating. Just, you know, and, and, and that's not solely from the, from, the, uh, from the department of the superintendent, but it could be from assistant superintendents, it could be from directors, it could be from a variety of people in central office. And now here comes all of this stuff, as they would call it, on top of the work that I already have to do as a classroom teacher. I felt that my role was to buffer that as best I could. Um, so instead of it just going right from central office to them, and that's, and, and I may add that which I'm passing on to them. So, so you got those pressures from me, but then coming from all different directions and we could even bypass, we, we can even look beyond the superintendent and look at what's coming from the state department, right. Of, of education within a given state. So here I said, I, I got to buffer that. I've got to get in between that. So there's a whole lot that teachers learned as they got to know me years later, that they would say to me, wow, you, you shielded us from a lot and you probably took a lot of heat in the process. I said, yeah, but I never bothered to tell you that. Um, because in my mind, that was my role to keep them comfortable. It doesn't mean that we bypassed any of the work, but it does mean that I was able to maneuver it in a way that it didn't disrupt what a teacher was doing in the classroom. I want to be that servant for them. I want to make them as comfortable as I can within the capacity of classroom teacher. So I'll, I'll, I'll deflect whatever I can. I'll maneuver whatever I can. I'll, 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 I'll steer it in whatever direction I need to in order for it still to be done, but to alleviate them of the added pressure to get it done, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And that's a unique twist, Principal Caffelli. I think most people wouldn't see that as necessarily a way of service. But I hear you saying you're protecting probably and arguably the most important space in a building. Yeah. And so could you walk us through a little bit how you would do that and still see a lot of these gains and ensure that the work's being done at the classroom level, have high expectations? I mean, the work you've achieved as a practitioner is incredible. And now saying, you know, and, and one of those ways, obviously, to our audience is that you protected that space. Can you walk us through that a little yeah, bit? Absolutely. Let me give you this example. Um, I am a stickler for lesson, lesson planning. There's a lot of us in this capacity who could care less about lesson planning. I've learned that more so as a consultant where lesson planning does not always occur. 
or or maybe more so the teachers who were newer uh teachers who 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 were struggling maybe held more accountable than say your seasoned teachers who were doing well for me i don't care how seasoned you may be how successful you may be if you were the national teacher of the year it doesn't absolve the fact that there's a need to plan because if you're not planning then you're probably winging so i don't i don't want i don't want a teacher that's winging it in the classroom because of your experience because of your past successes. Time moves on, children are advancing, the society is evolving. So therefore there's a need for us to continue to evolve with it, to continue to change and adjust with it. So with that said, my expectation was always that lesson plans were written for one week only, because I don't want teachers forecasting into second and third weeks, because I want the area of focus to be on the one, the current week that we're going into. So I had a superintendent, and he had done this, um, done his dissertation on some something dealing with lesson plans, and and he and he was a new superintendent for us, and he said, "We I want to change the model for the district of lesson planning, and instead of planning for a week, I want the teachers to now plan for two and a half weeks at a time." So it went against everything that I stood for. So as a principal, I had to take it initially. And when I say initially, I, I, I solely mean just sitting in the meeting listening, because after the meeting was over, because of the relationship I had with the superintendent and because of just just, you know, my overall people skills, I, I, I asked the, the superintendent, could we have a meeting? Could we talk? And I said, Doc, you know, we're low performing school. This is when when I when I first got there, I said, I need to take the week and just zero in on the week. I don't want my teachers projecting into next week and the week after. I want them to give maximum effort to the current week. And then we assess that as we move forward. So the teachers were aware that this two and a half week model was coming because it was, you know, was broadcasted. So then here comes our meeting. And I, I so, so I was able to convince him. I, he, he said, you're making a lot of sense. I said, yeah, we, 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 you know, moving from low performing to higher levels is incremental. It's, it's not this huge, this huge leap. It's incremental. So allow me to stay incremental and let's go a week at a time over the 40 weeks that we are in school. So let me just hold my teachers accountable for being maximally optimally effective within the week and then we'll get to the next week as they plan each weekend for the following week the subsequent week so he said you're making sense we'll do it so 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 now i went back to my staff because they you know they would they there was there was a there was just a lot of anxiety around that and i was able to say to them we can at ease right we can go back to one week of planning right most of you probably plan on on saturday or sunday turn them into me on monday morning and 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 then we start the process all over next weekend and 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 i was able to do that and i know my colleagues hadn't done the same so had i not stepped up the way that i did then then not only the entire district but speaking for my school they would have had to make this 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 huge conversion to the planning process in the middle of a school year when we're already struggling trying to meet ayp etc to where we got to ultimately so you know that was my way behind the scenes of making life easier being that servant for my staff
So thank you for that example. It's a great example of you as a principal working behind the scenes and stuff that we would say keen principals are best principals, turnaround principals are doing that others are either afraid to do or they don't know how to do, don't have the people skills as you as you described. Can you talk about maybe the outcome of that, the byproduct? Like what what do you get from your staff when you serve in that way? Not just the protection, but all the other benefits when you're willing to serve them in the way you described. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because it, it becomes a win-win. Because when, 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 a, when teachers know that they have a principal that has their back, when teachers know that they have a principal, that they have a leader, could be an assistant principal, that they have a leader that, that, that's supportive, that understands life in their shoes, right? Because sometimes we can get into these administrative roles and forget what that was. So have a leader that remembers, that can recall what life was in the teacher's shoes and teachers see that. Now we're talking about a situation where morale is obviously much higher, where turnover is, is virtually non-existent. Everybody wants to be there because I'm, I'm, I'm because not only am I coming to a school that I just enjoy working in, but I'm coming to a school where I really like working for and with this individual that happens to lead. And, and, and the beauty for me is I, I used to actually hear that. You know, folks would say, I, I just love coming here because I love working for you. You know, it, it, and, and being consistent with that. I remember when um, I had a teacher that when I got to my last school, North Tech in 2005, he was ready for retirement. He was um, a little over 65, and, but, he, but he stuck it out the one year and then he was gonna retire. Well, after that one year, he said to me, he said, Kefele, I'm not going anywhere until you leave. I said, fine, I stayed at the school for six years. Dynamite math teacher, he's in his seventies by the time I decided to leave six years later and he never left. He, um, he stayed a few years longer and I, I, I inquired, uh, speaking to some of the staff there, why is he still there? And they said, because he believes you're going to come back. I said, wow, he's holding out for me to come back. See, that's, that's that support. And when you're providing that kind of support, when you're providing that kind of leadership for your staff, folks don't want to leave. There's nowhere else to go. They want, they want to be there because it's a conducive environment for them being able to work at a high level. And probably no better time than now to where we need to support our teachers, less people going into the profession and those at times, and especially in, in some of the schools in which you've worked and spent your career, see some of the highest turnover. Um, so we appreciate that. And, and it is funny, it is those little things you know, of just support and leadership, um, that daily check-in that really help. Um, Principal Cafella, you're such an inspiration to so many people. Um, your career itself as a pra practitioner, your books are designed in a way that also are very direct, which I appreciate. They don't pull any punches. Um, I think anybody who reads them sees that right off the, the bat. Um, is there someone, a person or a group who you follow for either knowledge or inspiration and where could we find them? Yeah. You know what, a, you know, it's, it's such an interesting question. And, and I say that in the context of age, um, when I was on to use the slang, the come up and I'm, I'm trying to get to a certain 
level in 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 place as a as a as a principal and as a speaker there were plenty of people i looked at but at 60 i'm finding that there's a lot of folks who are looking at me now and 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 i'm always thinking like who am i looking at who you know and 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 it's 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 hard now it's harder just just in terms of where I am in terms of how I position myself and folks are looking at what is Principal Kefele doing? What is he thinking? What is he writing? What is he speaking about? You know, whatever. So, so here for me, I got to go back in terms of that person. And there's this person, people that know my work intimately, they know my go-to. And it was a principal in New York City in Brooklyn by the name of Frank Mickens. Uh, he was principal of a school that was at that time called Boys and Girls High School. 4,000 students, one of the lowest performing schools in New York City, a lot of violence, a lot of just all the all the trappings and stereotypes of an of a of an urban school um, of that of that magnitude, 4,000 students. And he literally turned this school around. And there were some practices that he engaged in that I literally took from him. One of them was the the young men's empowerment program. I put a focus on the boys. He put them in white, he put them in shirts and ties. I put mine in shirts and ties. And that played a significant role in, in the turnaround of my of my last school, which is high school. It's the only high school I led, and he was a high school principal. So for me, Frank Mickens, he wrote a he wrote a book. Um, it's called My Way, The Leadership Style of an Urban High School Principal by Frank Mickens, known as Mick, to his students. Hard book to get. Folks have to do their homework to try to find that book now because he passed. He transitioned a few years ago, and and so it made it it made it a little difficult to get your hands on the book. But phenomenal, phenomenal school leader, and someone that I will always have in the in the back back if not front of my mind, in terms of leadership for the rest of my life. That's great. Thank you for sharing that story. I mean, it's inspirational to to look back on the people who have shaped our careers and and to think about their leadership and what that has done for us. Um, what's one thing that people should try to do on a regular basis that might make a difference in their day or life that you, you've found in, in your in your travels or in your writing and research? Yeah, one thing um, I would reduce that to a daily attitude check, attitudinal check. Um, it's easy to go to your school, go to your district and engage in the work and literally leave your attitude behind, your, your positive attitude. So, so there's a need to, on a daily basis, perhaps throughout the day, the start of the day, within the day, the end of the day, at home, check this, see where it is. Because it's, it's so easy to to get caught up into the work that we forget to find, to, to, to just assess this, the attitude. What, what attitude do you have right now? And is it consistent with the attitude that brought you into this profession in the first place? And if you find that they are not aligned, then what are the things that you need to do to bring them back into alignment? You know, I, I always say, you know, I'm, I'm kind of using attitude the word within it is purpose. And I always say to folks, it's easy to lose your purpose through the, through, the, through the complexities of the work. And when you lose your purpose, you've lost your way. You've lost your will. And, and now what you do has become your work. So there's a need to go back and find your why. 
and your why is your purpose. And when you find your why, then it, then it makes it a little bit more easier to kind of narrow your vision as opposed to, I'm just engaged in all this work and, 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 and look at this thing, your specificity relative to your why you do it in the first place. Attitude check. Principal Caffelli, do you have any suggestions on how to get back? I get it. You know, we, we get into our brains. We look at our minds, give her a, a checkup from the neck up. I, you know, I agree wholeheartedly with all that. We're in COVID. This pretty much marks, you know, the year anniversary, um, especially in Delaware. This is the day where the governor shut down um, schools for two weeks. Um, and it ended up being a, a crazy roller coaster ride. And I think a lot of people are feeling tired. They are feeling a little worn out. Um, it's interesting as many schools look to bring more students on you know, I, I think it's interesting because we're waning in the school year and more fatigue is setting in. Yeah. What can people do to just bring back that purpose, that why, when they are a little lost in the sauce and can't see their way out of it? Yeah, you know, and that's, you know, with us being in this COVID season, that's um that's the question I get from a lot of people on these 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 um virtual presentations, a lot of a lot of my my clients. Talk about getting back to that why. And see, here, here it is for me. It's, it's, it's an exercise. It's an activity. Let's, let's go back into time. I'm talking to a group of teachers. Let's, let's go back into time, or leaders, doesn't matter. Let's go back into time. And, and, and let's see if we can find either the moment or the evolution of when we decided that we wanted to teach that we wanted to lead. Let's go back to that place. And that might, it, you know, it works really well when I'm on location. And, and, and let's, let's, let's just go back years, whatever it is. And, and as, as, as my audience finds their way back, I said, now let's, let's pose a question. As you're in that space years ago and you concluded, I want to be a teacher, dot, dot, dot. What came after that? Because what? Right. And there's there's very rarely a person in the room that cannot complete the sentence. Right. They they know why they made that decision. And I always tell them if if your if your response is because I wanted to make a difference, I wanted to make an impact, I want to look because I love children, whatever it is, I say, look, put that to the south, because we all want that. I said, go deeper, go deeper. Because it, there was something deeper than making a difference that that, that motivated you to want to teach. Let's find that. For me, I only became a teacher because I wanted to connect with black males, period. It had nothing to do with teaching any content area whatsoever. I knew my own story and I knew the story of countless black boys across America. I said, in, in terms of being fatherless, I said, I wanna fill that void. So I'll go into the school and do it and I'll teach content at a high level while I'm doing it. But the content being a teacher wasn't my motivation. So now, that was this as opposed to this. This is the work, this is everything, but that this is this. So now that kept me walking on the straight and narrow because I said, my purpose for being here is to build men out of boys. So when I went on and became, uh, became a principal, I never deviated from my why. So, when the, so when, when the times got tough and you know, as a leader times get tough often, right? So as the times got tough, I just went back to my why. That was my fallback. Oh, well, wait a minute. I'm, I'm here for this reason. Why am I so caught up into this stuff over here? 
when it has nothing to do with my why. So in talking to teachers in term, or, or leaders in terms of the question you asked, that's the question I want to engage them in. And so many of them have, so many of them have concluded, you're right. I lost my why. I misplaced my why. My why is not even a part of my reality right now. It's like they're walking in somebody else's why. Perhaps their leader's why as opposed to their own because they lost sight of it through, through just the, the, the pressures and demands of the work over time. It's powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Yes, sir. And that, that's, uh, it's incredible. You know, it's just incredible work. And I think uh, students are fortunate to have individuals like you who make those decisions. Thank you. Appreciate that. Absolutely. Principal Cafella, you're you're accomplished, prolific writer. What's one thing um, that you would want to know or be able to do that you don't already? Now, now is that in the context of education or is that just general? That's general. All right. Well, you know, it's it's easy for me then. I um during my principalship, I used to speak to my school over the PA often, it, particularly at the end of the day before they went home. I wanted to give them my closing words. And one of the things I kept saying to them is that I want to learn how to fly a plane. So one of the teachers was aware of a, of a flight school that wasn't too far from where I lived. And she, the next day, brought me this bro brochure, flight school. She said, here, take this. Go learn how to fly. I did. I, th the next day, I was at the flight school doing, a, doing my first flight. And then I, I did it for almost a year, right? And, 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 and I just got so busy, I couldn't finish it. So on the one hand, I wanna go back and get that license. But on the other hand, directly, I wanted to tie that to the question. The thing I wanna do, I wanna, not, not a plane I'm flying, but I wanna jump out of a plane. The problem with that, I don't, I don't, I don't have the courage to do it. I, I don't mind admitting that. I just do not have the, I have the courage to do most things in life but I do not, I cannot rationalize in my mind 3,000 feet up why I should jump out of this door, <laughs> right? So, so if, I, if I could ever get there and say, okay, this, I can justify it, then I'll do it. But that's that one thing that my life is not complete until I do it. And you can't have those two things at once. Fly no, the plane no. and jump and out. I said 3,000. That, that, that was the height of, of practice in flight as a pilot. It's, it's a lot higher than 3,000. Yep. Yeah. So <laughs> I, it's, it's very interesting. Um, one, I mean, I think it's awesome that you wanted to learn how to fly a plane and then you went and did it. There's so many people that we've interviewed on this show. Joe, I don't know. I can't say it's either speak Spanish, play the piano or fly a plane. Am I wrong? It's become uncanny. The whole idea of flight in, in this show and how many leaders want to do that, either like Superman, which we've heard as well, or fly a plane. Wow. Yeah, that's what I want to do. And apparently there's a lot of people out there that want to do it. Well, I don't know that it's a lot of people who want to do it as much as it's connected to leadership because this podcast we've always interviewed you know either leaders in education or outside of education and we just hear it consistently so wow. i think there is something about the leader who um has a desire to be in flight and so that's that's a neat theme it's a beautiful thing you know one of the things i i, I learned and it's only a cessna but i i know that if the pilot and the and the co-pilot were ever in trouble on the commercial airliner i know that that um, 
that they could they that, that air traffic control could bring me down. I I I know that because I know enough about the instrument panel and what you know and just what's entailed up there to be able to maneuver it if somebody's in my ear telling me what it is I need to do. That's neat. Yeah. That is that is a neat thing. Maybe something that do a lot of folks know that about you? Because I didn't know that. That's that's interesting. I don't. I don't. I, for whatever the reason, I don't talk about it much. It's something that I probably need to talk about. But yeah. <laughs> um. We want to ask this question because it's so important. I think for the fact that you've grown as a leader, you've had a ton of experience in schools. The amount of books you've read. What's one thing that has led to or continues to lead to your growth as a leader that others might be able to replicate? Yeah, um, that, that, all, that all goes right back to the whole conversation of equity, uh, social justice, education, cultural responsiveness, cultural relevance. I was, I've been that guy since, since undergraduate school. So it's, it's you know, just watching the, the evolution of equity in schools um, has been intriguing for me on a personal level, because I remember, let me just give it, let me, let me give it this backdrop. I say to educators almost every day, you can have the equity conversation all you want, but if that equity conversation is not inclusive of race, the uncomfortable conversation, then you got holes in your equity conversation, right? You, 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 can't, you can't be so uncomfortable about the topic that you decide to circumvent it. You've gotta have that conversation. So of course, equity means more than race, but, but, but in large part, the reason that the, that the, that the, that the concept or, or the conversation discussion of equity is in our space as educators is rooted in race. And it's particularly looking at black and brown students. So, 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 so now that we know that, if we're afraid to have the conversation as, as principals with our staff, as, as, as central office with, with our staff, whatever it is, then, then, we, then we got holes in it. It's, here, here's an example. It's this, this, here's the equity conversation, right? It's just got a bunch of holes in it. And that's the, these, these are the areas that we're afraid to talk. So for me, it's, it's so interesting because in social justice education, because that's who I was, but I had to sneak and be that guy. I had to look outside the door and make sure that there were no administrators around. Close the door and now let's 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 get down. And then as a principal, it was the same thing initially. But then over time, here comes this word equity. Here comes this this concept social justice. Here comes cultural relevance, cultural responsiveness. And I'm looking at it and and I'm looking at all this zeal with some, you know, some of our colleagues out here and I'm like, "Okay, this is great, but this this is where I've been all this time and and it was even on the website. But when folks were inviting me to come out and, pre and present, they look at all my topics, but those topics, they bypass. They're like, no, we don't want that in here. So they look at all the other topics. But then as the world changed, then they saw, oh, he, he talks about equity and social justice and race and diversity. Oh, let's, let's start calling Kefele for that. And then when George Floyd was murdered, that changed the whole game. Now that's 95% of the presentations. And I did about 400 this year because of, because of COVID. And, and, and most of them, they're calling because of that. They, 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 want, they want their staff to be comfortable engaging in the uncomfortable conversations about race, about equity, 
about social justice, about being culturally relevant, culturally relevant pedagogy, culturally responsive relations with children. Now it came full circle. So this is what people want. You know, so that's that that's that one thing for me. I'm I'm just glad that um that we're in a space now where I I can go into a convention center, I can go into a school district and I can have that conversation. Does that mean or or translate into everybody in the audience ready for this conversation? No. I've been treated horribly by by some audience members because because they weren't ready. You know, but 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 the leadership felt that the district regardless of whether or not they're ready that they needed to have it. You know, I'm at a point now where I'll ask a superintendent, hey doc, is your district ready for this conversation? Because I'm not sure I wanna come out there and present it, right? It's because because it gets that ugly sometimes. But uh, but in most cases, I still go and you, you know, we just endure it. Uh, and I would also say in most cases, folks are not insulting, but in some cases, folks get very blatant with it. You know, because folks are just not comfortable in this, this tough conversation. Principal Caffelli, I couldn't agree more. And, um, I, you know, your everything you just said resonates within the district I'm a part of. Um, everything you said from prior to us discussing equity um, to the murder of George Floyd and really, you know, things we were discussing, whether it be poverty, special ed students, um, I, we're in a vocational district, so we often discuss about non-traditional students, so a male who wants to go in cosmetology, and, and so we had all those conversations. Um, we discussed race to a degree, um, but certainly not through the lens and with the, the vigor that we are now, and I wanted to get your opinion on that. Do you think that, it, that the murder of George Floyd was an awakening or do you think it just people thought we were more progressive in America than where we are right now? I mean, what, what is your take on that? Um, and I love to, you know, dig into that a little bit with. Yeah, you. let's do it. I'm, I, I, first of all, I appreciate you asking the question and giving me the opportunity to, to delve a little deeper. The, the, the whole George Floyd murder, as I always say, eight minutes and 40 sec 46 seconds by a Minneapolis police officer, his knee. Um, it, 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 it's, it's so interesting in the education space because as I watched everything unfold and then, and, and then as we, we discovered Breonna Taylor, who today is the one year anniversary of her murder, I watched it and I said, wow, this has school implications. Now, of course, at that time, many of us thought schools would reopen. So students would be coming back and they would be bringing that energy with them, but they didn't. But, but, but the students, all the children, they saw what was going on. I don't mean in terms of just the murder, but the, but the reaction to it. So you had all this outrage, you had uproar, you had rallies and marches and protests and rebellion and even rioting. So all this going on throughout the course of the summer, I'm looking at it, I'm saying, are the schools ready for the youngsters as they bring that energy with them? Will they, will they suppress it? Will they deny them? Will they circumvent it? Will they will they will they tell them it's it's not re, it's not reality for school? It's not relevant for school. I mean, what what will they say? How will they have? Are the teachers do they have the 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 wherewithal? Do they have the knowledge base to be able to engage the children in those conversations? So so as that was occurring simultaneous to that, because of just the way I'm positioned in the world, folks were reaching out to me and they were saying, Principal Kafele. 
um, what, what books should I read? Because I'm trying, I want to understand what's happening. These were not educators across racial ethnic groups. These were my white colleagues across the country. Principal Kefele, I want to understand, here's the language they use. I want to understand systemic racism. I want to understand white supremacy. I want to understand white privilege. What books do you recommend? Now, the teacher in me and, and what I've read over the years, I said, I cannot recommend what they're looking for because I know exactly what they were looking for. I know the titles they're looking for. They're, they're sitting here or over there. I said, no, not those books. They want the books that will break down racism. I said, if I give you, if I recommend a book that breaks down racism, they will read the book have some degree of understanding of what racism is and its implications and how it impacts other people, the victims of it, but their analysis of it will look like this. It will have huge gaping holes in it because they'll understand contemporary racism, but they won't understand the history that got us to this place. So, so when I say that, I'm saying this. I say this almost every day. If there's a black person in America who was surprised by what they saw with George Floyd or Breonna Taylor or the roll call of black victims of police violence. If there's a black person alive that is shocked by that, I wanna meet them. I wanna, I wanna understand where they've been all their lives. So, so, so I don't think there was any shock as it related to black people. For black people it's like, this is what we've been trying to tell you for four centuries. But now you had you had your, your non-Black population, but particularly your white population, who's still a majority in this country. You had a lot of shock and surprise there. Like, whoa, they watched the video. Whoa. So, 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 so the reaction is like, this is crazy. I'm outraged. I'm marching. I'm getting a sign. Black lives matter, black lives matter. So, so now I got my sign, I'm angry, I'm out here protesting and marching every day. But black folks looking at that like, all right, we angry too. But there's nothing new here. The only thing new is that somebody caught it on video, but there's nothing new. So, so now I'm saying all that to say this, to the folks that were reaching out to me, I can't recommend that book. I need you to understand the, 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 the missing component of American history, and that is the African-American. So I got four books I want to recommend I say to them. Number one, Before the Mayflower by Lerone Bennett Jr., L-E-R-O-N-E. Lerone Bennett Jr., I said I, want you to, I said, I want you to read this so that you can understand the reality of being Black in America for the past four centuries, 402 years. So, so, so now you'll understand the, the 17th uh, century, the 18th century, the 19th century, the 20th century, all the way to the 21st. So I said, I want you to understand that. Secondly, I want you to read From Slavery to Freedom by John Hope Franklin, which parallels before the Mayflower, but it's written by a different author, so you get some other insight. These, these books are available, by the way. Thirdly, I said, I want you to read The Miseducation of the Negro by Dr. Carter G. Woodson, written in 1933, and, and, and not, a, not a sentence in that book irrelevant to 2021. In fact, I keep a very old copy sitting close behind the computer, but it, it won't look like this. This is like ancient. And then fourthly, lastly, 
um, African civilization, uh, Introduction to African Civilization by John G. Jackson. I said to the, because I'm saying to the reader, although I want you to understand American history, I want you also to understand who these black folks were before they got here. So I want to dispel all the stereotypes, all the caricatures, and I want you to understand the relationship of black people to science and technology and mathematics and, and architecture and, and engineering and astronomy and, and medicine and agriculture. And I can go on and on, scholarship. I, I said, I want the reader to understand that as well so that he really understand who that was that was brought over here as a captive to, be, to, to serve as a slave for the, the uh, up until 1865. So interesting, as, I'll, as I'll, 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 I'll cut it off in a second. Interestingly, as the readers began to buy these books over the summer, they began to post them, the covers on their Twitter feed, and they would give me commentary. And they would say to me things such as, Principal Kefele, I got the book. Like they would put, um, the miseducation of the Negro, for example, right on the screen, or they would put before the Mayflower, which is too high for me to reach. And they would say, I'm angry, I, I'm appalled, not at the book. I'm angry, I'm appalled at the fact that I have read things. I've been in education for 25 years. I've been in education for 30 years. And just because you were our speaker today, or, or you're one of the people, or, or I reached out to you on social media, you introduced me to something I've never heard before. I feel like I conclude I have been lying to my children since the day I stepped into a classroom as a school teacher, right? Like, like let me give you this example. I know you're not gonna put all this on the, on, on the podcast, but let me just throw this at you. Um, you, you notice I just lightened up my, my, brightened up my lights, right? Cause it got dark all of a sudden. But, but here's the thing that made me think about that. You and I went to school and learned about Thomas Edison. Each of us, the three of us are in lighted rooms. Neither of us have Thomas Edison lights. All three of us are, are, are sitting here being, being lit up by Lewis Latimer lights. Now, what do I mean by that? Lewis Latimer in 1880 was, was an assistant to Thomas Edison, 15 years after the Civil War. So he's an assistant to Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison comes up with a great prototype for a light bulb, but it doesn't work. It, it flickers out and it gets excessively hot and it's, it's, it's expensive to produce. So he had this young African-American by the name of Lewis Latimer working with him. And, and Lewis Latimer said to him, I know what's wrong with that, that bulb. It needs the wiring called carbon thread filament. And if you allow me to insert this wiring, it will sustain its glow. So he went on and, and, and inserted the wiring into the bulb and, 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 and the world saw it. And he went on and wrote a textbook, the first textbook ever written in America in the 1880s on electrical lighting, incandescent lighting. And from there, the cities were ready to light up. So New York, Philly, Washington, Montreal, Canada, London, England, and so many in, across America. Louis Latimer, we need you to come to our city to, to supervise the installation of electrical lighting. Well, I shared that over the summer with, with many. It's coming out of several books, but here's one, Blacks in Science by Ivan Van Sertema. And 
teachers are writing me. They're putting pictures of Lewis Latimer on the screen like a fele. I never heard of this man. I said, guess what, teacher? Guess what, principal? He's been hidden in plain sight. If you Google Lewis Latimer, L-E-W-I-S, you'll see countless websites that talk about Lewis Latimer. Hidden in plain sight, like so much of the other history. So, that, so, so therefore, going full circle to the question, I'm saying that teachers have to be re-educated. Undergrad, forget undergrad, elementary, grade school, high school, undergrad school, master's program, graduate school, unless they were in the black studies program, did not prepare them for this. So now they're walking into a classroom. And I know I'm going way beyond your, your, you guys' question. You know how to edit this. Listen, they, the, the, the young person, the teacher, remember when the NBA bubble occurred? And, and you had you had the, the teams that, that, that had the, a good enough record to be in the bubble. You had all of them in Orlando, Florida, in a bubble. And, and the purpose was to ensure that the virus never got in. I'm looking at it as a fan saying, no way. It's not going to happen. It's, getting, it's going to get in there. Well, lo and behold, it didn't. Nobody got sick in that bubble. I'm looking at it through an educator's lens. I said, this has implications for school. I said, I can use this because there are teachers and I'll point over here who grow up in a bubble. And then there are children who grow up in their bubble. So we're all growing up in our, in our separate bubbles, so to speak. So imagine the teacher who is unfamiliar with everything I've just talked about over the past several minutes, because, because I'm, I've grown up in this suburban location. I'm not around people of color. It's not that I dislike them or anything or don't want to be with them. It's just that I'm in a world where they're not there, right? I don't know most of New Jersey, and I've been here for 60 years. I go traveling to these communities where my audiences are white, and they start asking me, do you know this town and this town? No, I don't know them. I never heard of them because I only know the cities. I know Newark and Irvington and East Orange and Jersey City, and I don't know these places out here. So the, my, you don't, you don't you live in Jersey as a small state? Yes, but I don't, we don't go there. Those places are white. We, we have no reason to be there, right? We're not invited there, right? So, so here's the thing. You can grow up in your bubble, because that's what that is. That's a bubble, and I'm down the I'm down the highway in the urban bubble, and I'm in the school in the urban bubble. So now here's this teacher in that suburban bubble somewhere in Jersey in a town that could be ten minutes away from here that I've never heard of, although I've been a resident here for sixty years, and now that teacher goes to college, and may not necessarily certainly, but may gravitate to people who look like the same ones from the bubble. That's normal. I remember as a student in college, I gravitated to the other African-American students. We had that in common. So, so now they gravitate to folks who look like them. So now I'm ready to teach. I've, I, I got, I, I got my, my degree, my certificate. I want to go to an urban school. So now that teacher winds up in that urban school. Well, guess what? You're in a new bubble that you are not familiar with, that you may have no prior experience, exposure to the people in this new bubble. 
But then you got black children in particular who are, who, who are going to the school in their neighborhood, but may be just as unknowledgeable of history as the teacher that's, that's now in my classroom. So now a youngster doesn't know who that is in his or her mirror, but teacher doesn't know who that is sitting in the seat. So now you have recipe for disaster. That's why I had to be the guy I was, where I'm going to take teacher and literally guide the teacher toward unraveling. And now let's remold, let's reshape so that teacher has better understanding socially, politically, economically, historically, culturally, who this child is in the classroom in the first place. But in the context of this broadcast, imagine the challenge for the leader that may also be in that bubble or the leader who is not in that bubble but doesn't feel politically that I wanna even broach that for, for, for reason of what it may do to me personally relative to me holding a job and maintaining a career. So you got all that to grapple with, but I say at the end of the day, if you choose to lead, then you must lead. You must have a backbone, a spine, and you must dare to lead if it's going to benefit the young people. And that includes having the willingness to broach these uncomfortable topics. It's just that you gotta use your people skills. Here's the best book I say to any, any leader. Hey, leaders that are going to see this broadcast, if you haven't read this one, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. That's the book right there. I don't know why they don't make this mandatory in, in, in leadership development at graduate school because you have, because we're in the people business. But I also, also say teachers, you need to read it because you're in the people business. You're, you're, you're trying to sell something every day. And a lot of times, there are children that don't want to make a purchase. You gotta know how to sell it, right? So I know I was on my soapbox, y'all, but. No, we appreciate you you digging in and, and spending that time with us. And listen, I consider myself, I'll, I'll be vulnerable right here, Principal Cafe. I consider myself well-read and I, I can even list some of the books I'm reading right now um, that I would think fit this topic and 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 me going a little bit above and beyond you know, what the person would typically read and i've not heard of any of these books oh i'll admit that we and and i can tell you just i, I was talking to tj not too long ago about that i saw a list of 20 must reads and to get more knowledgeable grow in context and understand and and I'll tell you, we'll, we'll reference all these and we'll be in touch because I'll let you know how we, we, we read these and we won't edit any of this. Just okay. so you know, that's not our intent. The last thing we would want is for you to go and, and discuss and share all of your stories and your passion and then us edit any of that. So um, we, we want people to dig into this and experience it for themselves. Our final question and you know, this uh, is a little, we always get an interesting response to this. It's one thing that you used to think that you don't think anymore. Yeah, um, I, I guess I'll contradict myself. Um, in, in undergrad school, I thought I had the solution 
to all the problems in urban schools as related to educating black and brown children. And I said, until those schools are 100%, this is me in my 20s now, until those schools are 100% staffed with black educators, we will never see any change. That was me. So, so I'm not a teacher yet, and I don't know that I want to be a teacher, but that was my position. Then I become a teacher, and I still have that notion. And then I become a principal. And I said, that foundation I'm standing on is weak because I had some dynamite. I want y'all to hear that word. I had some dynamite white teachers on my staff who were taking care of business, but I like to say, I, I like to keep that part raw, who were kicking butt, right? And I said, man, this what this teacher is doing flies against my foundation, what I believe. So at that point, I said, no, I definitely need black teachers and I definitely need black men on staff. I need black teachers on staff. But I don't need, but I don't need them at the expense of my talented white teachers, right? So, so, so it allowed me, it, it forced me to draw the conclusion: I, I just need solid people, solid people who are willing to roll up their sleeve and learn what they don't know, right? And make those adjustments. I do need black teachers on my staff, but, 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 but I have no issue with having folks who are not black who are taking care of business as well as I'm gonna expect my black teachers to do, right? I need, I need a staff, whomever they are, to take care of business. But, you know, I always, um, I always reference this one teacher. Uh, I haven't referenced her in a, in, a, in a minute, but I'm gonna reference her real quick. I took over a school, which as soon as I got there, it was in the summertime, so it was when school was closed. I, I, was, I, I took over this school and five days in, in July, this is going back to 2003, the school was designated as persistently dangerous. That was the first year they did that. It was the only school in North Jersey. So it was considered the most dangerous school in North Jersey. So, you know, we're up here with North and all the towns I, I named earlier. So it became a, a major New York City news story because of, because of us being the only one. So everybody knew, and here I am in this school. So then here comes this teacher as I'm interviewing teachers, here comes this one teacher, very young, about 22 years old at the time, Allison Patricelli. And she sits in my office and she says, I, I want this job. And I said, you do? I said, did you see us on the news? Yeah, I saw it. I said, do you realize the challenges here? Yeah, and you never taught before, right? No, except for student teaching. All right, but, but she convinced me that she was the one. That's okay. So I hired her. She came in working on her classroom early in terms of getting it together. And I would walk by and notice how it was coming along. And I looked at this library that she developed and I went and read the book, looked at the book titles and it was books that were reflective of the student body. Then I looked at the poster she was hanging up and the imagery, the historical images were reflective of the student body. Then I looked at the arrangement of the desk. She was gonna be a seventh grade teacher and most of the, the classrooms, they were set up in rows and hers was in clusters. And I said, huh, that's interesting. So I'm not gonna say anything. So, so now we start and I, you know, I just casually walk by. I'm not gonna walk in because I don't wanna take away any of her authority. 
So, but I noticed that the kids are gravitating to her and she's taking care of business. So I kept walking by and then finally, I guess in week two, I decided to walk inside and see what's going on. And I knew right then and there, I said, man, I wish I could make this teacher the teacher of the year, but she's too new. I can't do it politically. Uh, we, you know, we did it later, but here's the thing. She was coming from the suburbs. She was in that bubble I referred to, but she knew what she didn't know. And she knew she needed to learn, but she did realize she, she, she had, I didn't have to teach her this, that if I'm gonna put imagery on the walls, it needs to reflect these kids. If I'm gonna have reading material in the room, it has to reflect these kids. It doesn't have to be exclusively, but, but, but there's gotta be reflection because, my, because I don't wanna discount diversity of learning. But here, she made sure that the reading material that the youngsters are going to see themselves in the learning, that was crucial. She turned out to be an extraordinary teacher. I moved on eventually and she moved on, but we stayed in touch via e um, email and she's still doing big things. So I'm, I'm using that example to say, as long as I got folks in there taking care of business, you know, so that was the thing I had to come to grips with in terms of who I was earlier and who I became as a leader. You know, being a leader opened my eyes to a lot of things, a plethora of different things in terms of things I thought I knew and then I, I, I looked at it through the lens of a leader and say, wow, I gotta re, I gotta re-examine this. Well, that was a fantastic story. I wrote that down because I think it's powerful and it's really a statement overall in education. And I think the 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 dual nature of 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 the meaning behind solid people who can take care of business and learn what they don't know. Joe and I always talk um about a learning culture versus a teaching culture. You, you know that from, from our conversations with, with Salome. And that is true. Take care of business, but also learn what you don't know. And critical, critical point. And a great place to end. Principal Caffelli, is there anything else that you would like to add today for our listeners? You know, I think we covered a lot of ground. And um, I would say to the listeners, do explore further um, social justice education. Um, I'm, I'm of the firm belief um, that the world outside and the world inside the classroom cannot be separated. Um, there cannot be a line of demarcation with a mindset that as the teacher, I'm preparing you for the real world because this world that the youngster sits in is the real world. It's just that the youngster now is in this space called the classroom. So those issues that, that, that happen out there are part, in part what has shaped and molded that youngster into who that youngster is, right? So those isms, those challenges, those obstacles, et cetera, those, those, are, those are what comprise this youngster. So I don't want the youngster to come in and we've checked who you are at the door and now you've become just this plain generic kid. No, you... That, that's who you are. So, so, so when I talk about social justice education, they become one. The world outside, the world at home, the world in the classroom. So now, therefore, do I have the audacity to broach that topic? And see, with, with social justice, I don't mean a topic of let's discuss the issues of the day. I mean, social justice mean the, the student-centered exploration 
examination and assessment of the world upon which the student lives through his or her own lens. See, that's 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 a that's a different take. So we're saying, if we were talking, just since we mentioned George Floyd, if we're talking about George Floyd, we're talking about George Floyd in the context of the child. We're not talking about George Floyd in the context of the teacher's interpretation, because now we run the risk of teacher-driven indoctrination as opposed to student-centered ex exploration, right? So teacher is a facilitator in the process, but teacher is not in there, this is how I feel about it, X, Y, and Z, right? Teacher, you know, whatever the teacher's views and opinions are, they have a place in that classroom. But in terms of what student-centered, I mean, uh, uh, social justice education is, that's coming from the perspective of young people, regardless of what their age is. It's giving them a voice in their own classroom, and it is not confined to history and social studies. Social justice education plays a prominent role in mathematics, a, a prominent role in science, in language arts, reading, writing, listening, speaking, and viewing, and then obviously in history, social studies, but in PE and health. You know, if we're in a health class and we're talking COVID, for example, we're in a science class and we're talking COVID relative to disparities in access to vaccines, disparities in access to healthcare. There's social justice right there in the in the midst of a of a health lesson right, in the midst of a science lesson, we're talking mathematics, then we're talking numbers, right, in terms of, so, so, so now the numbers are no longer abstract, we can quantify the disparities in understanding math concepts, right, fractions and decimals, etc. right, so it's just, it's just a matter of, 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 of rethinking, as, a, as, as, as the popular word today is reimagining how we go about approaching education relative to social in racial justice issues in the classroom. Well, there you have it. We went from servant leadership all the way to reimagining public education and a great podcast. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you. I appreciate the opportunity and appreciate you both. All right, folks, don't forget to follow at the blog at theschoolhouse302.com for blog posts, podcasts, and video blogs, always on the topic of leadership. And we hope you enjoyed this One Thing series on servant leadership and so much more. Thank you, Principal Capelle. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsors. Hey, Joe, you know what leaders need these days? What's that, TJ? Sleep, a good night's rest, self-care. We've heard it over and over and over again from our guests on the podcast that you can't pour from an empty cup. Leaders need sleep. One of the number one ways you can replenish yourself and lead better is a good night's sleep. I hear you, but you know what? I'm so tired. I don't even like thinking about you know getting a good night's sleep. But, you know, do tell, how do we go about getting better sleep? Well, I think that's part of your problem is you need a better bed. It always starts with the bed. That's why we recommend Ghost Bed, our sponsor, with 30,000 plus five-star reviews. Their patented sleep and cooling technology gets you to sleep faster and longer than any other bed. That's right. And their handcrafted mattresses come with a hundred and one night at home sleep trial. 
and a two times the industry standard warranty. They're absolutely certain that their beds will work for you. And with free shipping within 24 hours of your purchase, it's fantastic uh, support from the company. And guess what? Just for being a listener at the Schoolhouse 302, you get 30% off with the use of our code SH302 at checkout. You go to ghostbed.com. You get some sleep so that you can lead better and grow faster. You use SH302 at checkout. Absolutely. And last thing, even if you don't need a bed, you're thinking, wow, I would love to try out ghost bed, but I just bought a bed. Refer someone else for a bed at ghostbed.com. You'll get a hundred bucks for helping someone else get a good night's rest. Wow. That's 30% off with SH302 code at ghostbed.com. A hundred bucks for your referral. If you get somebody else a good night's sleep, better sleep for you, better leadership, ghostbed.com. You can't beat it. Ghostbed.com. Ghostbed.com.